listening to audio from Redwood Baptist Church. If you need any more information about us, go to www.redwoodbaptist.org. We hope and pray the message that you're about to listen to will strengthen you, encourage you, and make you more like Jesus. Blessings. We looked at a text from the book of Acts on Lydia. and Hopefully, whether you were a female or a male, you were encouraged last week and you gleaned something from the Word. Mark chapter number 3, we're going to begin reading in verse number 1. Mark chapter number 3, we've already finished chapter 1 and 2, let's get to number 3. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, stand forth. And he saith unto them, that would be those that were there with the scribes and the Pharisees, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they held their peace. So in other words, they, didn't, they had no response. And when he had looked around about on them with anger, being grieved from the hardness of their hearts, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. This morning, I want to start this chapter. Uh, we're going to spend two weeks in chapter number three. But the message this morning is entitled, No Neutrality with Jesus. There is no neutrality with Jesus. Let's ask the Lord to bless this time. Father, we thank you, uh, Lord, for your word. I thank you for each person that's here. And uh, God, our hearts uh, also go to those that uh, just physically... Uh, this morning cannot be here. We think of Frank and Diane. God, we pray that you would uh, touch their touch their bodies. Lord, help them to just have a sense right now of how much we how much we miss them. And then uh, Carla, with just having many seizures this week, and uh, and Elizabeth and God, we just ask that you would um, touch her body as well and give them a sense of how much they've been uh, missed and loved. And then, Lord, those that are, uh, might even be uh, just away on vacation, give them a wonderful time. But Lord, we've we've come on a Sunday. And Lord, we don't want to just be here in vain. We didn't just come to just get out. Hopefully we don't have that type of spirit. But instead, Father, we desire to learn from your word. And Lord, I pray that you would articulate, God, uh, through me, what you would place uh, upon us. Let, let the scriptures lean in on us here this morning and uh, help us to bear the weight of it. and Help us to, uh, to yield, Lord, to, Father, what you want to do in our lives. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you had to describe Jesus to someone who knew nothing about him, what words would you use? If you had to, if you had to paint a portrait of, of your Savior, the assumption would be that you are a Christian here this morning and he's your Savior. If not, I would, I would challenge you to listen carefully today. But if, 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 if you had to describe or paint a, paint a portrait of Jesus, what were the things, what would you emphasize? What, how, would you, how would you describe him? There is a real way in which what we're going to look at this morning and next week is this multifaceted portrait of Christ. Uh, we're going to be confronted with uh, the fact that as you stand in front of that portrait of whatever you would paint of him, but certainly the portrait that is displayed in Mark 3, that as you look at his self-declaration of how he would describe himself, as you look at the things that he does, it is impossible to be neutral. 
And then you're going to see some variety of responses uh, in this chapter over the next two weeks of as Christ is declaring Himself. And so I would ask, how did you respond to Him this week? How did you respond to Jesus in your in your life this week, as you as you went into the in, into the workplace and you were around your neighbors and your family and your friends, how did you respond to Jesus or the working of Jesus in your life? As I studied this passage uh, this week, I, I, I had a thought for myself, and the thought that I had was as I read over and over and over again Mark three, I I had the thought of Lord, I believe but help my times and my seasons of, of unbelief. We've even read that in, in text of, of people that would say, to, say a prayer like that. Lord, I believe, but help Thou my unbelief. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Case for Christianity, he says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish things that people often say about Him being Jesus Christ. Here's what people say. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept His claim to be God. That is one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. What? Well, what he's saying there is if he was only a man, he's either a lunatic or he is a devil. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and you can kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher he has not left that option up to open to us. He did not intend to. And so as we look in over the next two weeks here at Mark chapter number 3, I want you to, I want you to keep C.S. Lewis's words in mind. That he's either, he is or either is the Son of God or he's just a madman, lunatic type of devil. There are four Gospels in the New Testament, as you know. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In these four Gospels, they have, they have a singular purpose. And the purpose is summed up at the end of John. In John 20, it says, But these are written, that would be all the Gospels, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life or eternal life through His name. John tells us that the reason that you have the record of Jesus' life and His ministry. And all of this has been written so that you and I would believe that He's the Son of God. And that believing in Jesus as the Son of God and what He did in His life and in His ministry, you and I would have eternal life in and through His name. And so the four Gospels then are designed as proof. Or they're designed as evidence of the deity of Jesus Christ. They tell us that Jesus is not just a mere man. That Jesus isn't just a mere prophet. That He isn't just a really good, awesome teacher. And man, was He ever. But that He wasn't just that. But rather that He is the Son of God. And listen, any Jew would understand that term. They would understand the term as 
the Son of God, every time he would call himself that, or every single time he was referenced as that, he was literally saying, I am God. They would have understood that he was saying, I am deity. I am God. And so he is God himself. And so you see in the in the first six verses that I read, we'll go further into the chapter this morning, but uh, we see the portrait, first of all, in the first six verses of Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, we, we talked about this a few, a few weeks ago, uh, but he's, he's in the synagogue, and there's this man that comes that has a withered hand. And he comes and he, he stands up in front of Jesus. Now, we don't know if this is a, a setup of some kind, uh, by, by the Pharisees, but we do know that they're there. We do know that they are observing. They're, they've been tracking Jesus. They've been, they've been following Him. And they're there to accuse Him of something that, that, that He's about to do. Their desire was to bring Him down. And they actually think that they are posing or there was a situation posed to Jesus Christ that there was going to be some form of a moral quandary for Jesus Christ. And the quandary was, is would Jesus on the Sabbath heal this man? Now, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, when we were in chapter number two, I gave you the, the traditional side of, and, the, and the legalist side of the Sabbath and how they were, you, you couldn't work and they couldn't uh, just certain weights of different things and how everything was deemed work. You couldn't take a shower and all of those things. You could only take 2,000 steps in a given day, and so they would count those. And so they were wondering, because you couldn't work, quote-unquote, on the Sabbath, I wonder if Jesus was going to heal this man. And so you can see how ridiculous this, this legalism really is. They have such a legalistic view of the Sabbath that something that would be an act of God-honoring good is not inside of their definition of what is legal on the Sabbath. I want you to think about this. If the Sabbath was made for man, if you remember at the end of chapter number two, Jesus says that, that the Sabbath was made for man, man was not made for the Sabbath. So if the Sabbath was made for man, then what could be more honoring of the Sabbath than to heal the hand of this man? The Sabbath was made for man. If the Sabbath is made for the worship of God, which we learned two weeks ago, what could be more honoring than the Creator to restore His creation. And so yet the legalism of the Pharisees, they would put this act of good-naturedness, this act of good, outside of their definition of what was right on the Sabbath. And so here's what Jesus said in verse number 4. And He said to them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil? or to save life, or to do evil, or to save life, or to kill, but they held their peace. Now I want you to, want you to hear me. Follow me, please. Do you hear what I'm about to say? They, the words will be up on the screen here, but I want you to follow it. Legalism is not first a matter of theology. Legalism is not first a matter of biblical interpretation, which so many people want to say it is. Legalism is first a condition of the heart. It is rooted in self-righteousness. It is rooted in pride. And when that pride and that self-righteousness, it always leads to the condemnation of others. Always. 
Legalism rears its ugly head in our pride and in our, in our self-righteousness of this is what I'm doing or this is what I'm not doing, which with has condemning eyes to others around us. So legalism in our text here of Mark chapter number 3 would rather celebrate principle than meet the needs of people. Legalism in its pride and in its self-righteousness lacks mercy. It lacks grace. And it lacks compassion. And so as Jesus looks at these men with these uh, righteous anger, so to speak, and, and, and He's speaking to these individuals, He's saying, hey, you are the religious leaders of your day. But you're getting it wrong. And rather than weeping for the brokenness of the fall that this man is now enduring, you see this as a moment to advance your legalism. I mean, those are some striking words that Jesus, he's asking these questions. He's like, should I, should I not heal this man? And they, they answer not a word. Now, before we stand too far away and look at the Pharisees and we begin to judge them, I mean, that's what we want to do this morning. We want to, we want to, we want to separate ourselves from them. But before we do that, I think you and I, we need to admit some things a little bit this morning. I think if we're honest, and, and, and if you allow the Word to kind of to, to press in on you a little bit, some of this resides still within us. Those of you that are, that, that are moms and dads in here, it's, would you agree that it's easier to beat your kids over the head with the law than to rescue them with grace? Man, absolutely. It's so much easier. It's easier to have a judgmental and condemning spirit toward a spouse than it is to look at them in their sinful struggle with compassion and grace, and perseverance, and gospel ministry. It's so easy to do this. It's easy to look down on a brother or sister in Christ who does not seem to be as far along as you, and to look down upon them and be like, how come you don't do this, and how come you don't do that, and why do you do this, and so on. It's so easy to do it. The seeds of legalism, hear me, are in our hearts. If we're honest, it's so easy just to be like, that's what I said to my kids, rather than taking the time and showing the grace and the loving. It's so easy to look at a spouse and just be like, why are you struggling with this, rather than the grace and the persistence. And so Jesus, He, he heals this man. And what's the response of the Pharisees? It's a dead giveaway. Look at verse 6. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. They yoke up, they commensurate with the Herodians to destroy Jesus. You've got to, you've got to understand what, what Mark is, what he's telling us here. The Pharisees are the, are the protectors of the Palestinian Judaism. Okay? And the, 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 the mortal enemies would have been the Herodians. The Herodians are sympathetic of the Roman leadership. They would, have been, they, they would have been for that. And so they would have been the exact opposite. They would have been arch enemies. And so it's shocking to see them seek out the help of these guys in order to crush the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. That tells you everything you need to know about their hearts. And may God preserve us from this dangerous type of legalism. May, may, may God spare us as a collective group of believers 
of ever looking out to another, let me just put the caveat, gospel preaching church. And for us to ever be like, I hope something bad happens there. Or, you know, uh, if they gain something, somehow it's a loss for us. No, no, no. In Christ, we are on the same team. And yet these men, the, the, these Pharisees, they, they sought out their arch enemies to have Jesus crucified. And so, these are the religious insiders of the day. And then Mark immediately in this chapter of chapter 3, he, he takes us to another portrait of Jesus. The first portrait is, is that, hey, Jesus, he's, he, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. That's his first portrait. He, he, he rules this day. And I talked much more, much more about that several weeks ago. But let's notice, secondly, Jesus, the great deliverer. We see Jesus in this text as the great deliverer. Look at verse number 7. But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude. I mean, you hear that? How many people are literally following him? And when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. And he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. For he had healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him, and as many as had plagues. And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God, and straightly charged them that they should not make him known. So the word we read in Mark chapter 3, it's gotten out. That Jesus has this awesome power. And what's connected to this awesome power is this, is this glorious compassion. And so all of broken humanity, so to speak, they're, they're coming to Christ. They're, they're, they're literally running to Him. And I, want you to, I want you to imagine the scene as Jesus tries to kind of to, to, to get alone to the, to the shores of, uh, of Galilee. But he cannot. He's come out of the synagogue. He's, he's, trying to, he's maybe trying to get some alone time. How many of you ever, every once in a while need some rest, right? You do. And Jesus is trying to get a little bit, he kind of get some alone time, kind of going on to the shores of Galilee. And then here comes the people from all of these different neighboring cities. They're coming and they're, and they're pressing in on him. Everybody that's been suffering. My friends, I think if you and I could watch a video of this somehow, I think you and I would probably weep. If you and I could imagine those that are being carried that are crippled, those that are diseased, those that are, those that are suffering and wailing, and they're all they're pressing in themselves to Christ so much that, they, there's, that there's the fear of even, of even being crushed. There's so many people that are coming. And so he tells the disciples, hey, hey, hire a boat so we can kind of come off the shore a little bit out into the water. Everyone is just thronging him trying to come and be ministered by this man of great power and awesome compassion. As I was reading this portion of the chapter this week, I, I was thinking about the second time that I went to the Philippines. I was on a 10-week missions trip, and this particular time we went to uh, the massive 20-plus million city and the cities around it of Manila. And I could just, I was in ultimate culture shock to begin with, even though I'd already been there. Uh, but as, as, as we, 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 went to a, we went to a local trash dump outside of the city of, uh, of Manila. 
and it's probably the closest experience that I've ever had that I could maybe describe to you of maybe what Christ was experiencing. And we are driving there. We're in this big van. And as we pull up to this massive trash dump, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people living there. Families like little makeshift kind of tents made out of trash and cardboard. And, and as, the, as we kind of pulled to a stop, they all began to walk towards the van. They all began to kind of come and begin to touch the van. And as many people began to touch the van, you literally can feel it begin to move. Children with massive bellies and sticks for arms as they're consuming waste and trash that simply just bloats the belly. Their heads were, were big. I, I don't know how else to explain it. They were filthy. And they're coming to my door. And I, I'll be honest with you. I was just like, even Lord, so come quickly. I just, I just be totally real and honest with you. And the man, the, the, the missionary that we were with, he said, here, I want you to put some of this Vicks Vapor Rub and I want you to stick your fingers in it and it's going to burn a little bit, but you need to do it. And literally, we stuck our fingers up our noses and put Vicks Vapor Rub all up on our nose. He said, because when we open up these doors, the, just the, 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 the stench and just the, the decay, the brokenness is going to be all over you. And we open those doors and we began to minister and our hearts began to break. I so desperately this week looked for pictures of when we were there. But it was on one of those things called a floppy disk. You remember those? Floppy disk. Those things don't even work anymore. And I so badly wanted to show you pictures. Not to in any way shame these men and women and children and families that, that, that are just in abject poverty. Listen, you and I, we're blessed this morning. Amen. How many of you ate breakfast? Say amen. Okay, how many of you are going to eat today? Say amen. Hey, if you're fasting, it's on you, okay? We're blessed. And again, I think that probably pales in comparison. Because apart from preaching Jesus, that's not really what they wanted. They wanted food. They wanted money. They wanted all these things. And listen to me. And I'm going to complain today? Yet the deliverer, Jesus Christ, he comes and everyone is thronging to him for this, for, for this healing. That's that's probably the closest scene that I could try to, to, in my life, to try to give you what was happening here. And when you see the healing power and the healing compassion of Christ in this moment and in the moments of, uh, of Scripture in His life, it is the declaration of who He is and what He will do. And praise God, Revelation 21 says, And He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And He said unto me, Write for these words, are true and faithful. Someday, praise God, the great physician, the great deliverer, he's healed so many in, in the Bible days. But listen, there's going to come a day when there's no more sickness, where there's no more sorrow, where there's no more suffering, where there's no more pain. Why? Because the healer ultimately is going to complete his work. He's doing it right now. He's working and he's healing people from their greatest of need, which is sin. We've looked at that in this book as well. But praise God for who Jesus is. And then look what it says in verse number 11. It says, And the unclean spirits, when they saw him, they fell down before him, and they cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. Stick with me this morning. 
Even the demons recognized who he is. His power has been clear, so clear that he has that the presence of that even in the presence of those demons, they fall down and they say, Hey, you're the Son of God. God declared who he was. The evidence made it obvious to who he was. But why didn't the people get it? Why do you go through the whole book of Mark and no one ever says, yes, you are the Son of God? God says it. The demons say it. And you come to the very end of the book of Mark and a Roman soldier says it. But what about the Jews? Can I put it this way? What about the church? Why, why weren't they saying it? Well, it's because there was a barrier. There was, actually, there was actually a massive barrier. And we get the insight when we go back to chapter number 2, which we preached through this, but look at verse 21. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filled it up taketh away the old, and his rent is made worse. And no man putting new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred, but new wine must be put into new bottles. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, the message I bring cannot be connected. Oh, just stick with me for a few more minutes. It cannot be connected with Judaism. You cannot sew the two of them together. It cannot be contained in Judaism. It's completely separate. And this poses a massive, massive barrier. See, Jesus never offered himself as some kind of reformer simply wanting to reform Judaism. He didn't come to one saying, hey, hey, you've got a lot of things that are, that are wrong in your worship, and I'm here, to, I'm here to fix them. You know what he came to do? He came to abolish Judaism. He came to nullify it and to bring it to an absolute end. Jesus is the inaugurator of a completely, I don't even like using this word, but a new religion. But let me say this, a new, a new, way, of, a new way of worshiping, a new way of unto eternal life, this new covenant which would bring about the end of the old. And I mean the absolute end of the old. I'm not talking about just the end of the, uh, the, the apostate Judaism that was clearly existed in the first century Israel. I'm not just talking about obliterating what, what the Pharisees and the scribes were shoveling. But I'm talking about the full end of Old Testament Judaism. He came to end Judaism as a religion. And since the arrival and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, Judaism is a dead religion. Now continue with me. Jesus ended the Old Covenant era. He ended the shadow era. The Old Covenant shadow era always pointed to the life and to salvation, but it never provided it. Because by the means of the Old Covenant, the keeping of the law, no one could be saved because no one could keep it. We've talked about that. The Old Covenant said that there was a life but it could not provide that life. The old message was that sinners must come to God, but sinners could not come to God through that old method. There was a life for sinners, but not the system. In fact, Paul calls the old covenant in 2 Corinthians 3, but if the, but if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious so the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. What Paul is saying is but that old covenant literally was a ministration of death. It was to bring you to Christ. It was to push you to shadow of Christ. 
So the Old Covenant says God is separate. The Old Covenant says that God is distant and you cannot get near Him. You say, where is that illustrated? Well, all of the people, they had to be out in the courtyard, right? And then you had the holy place. And even inside the holy place, you had the holy of holies. And no one was allowed to go in there except one time a year. A priest was able to go in there for just a short period of time on the Day of Atonement. But that was the dwelling place of where God was. So hear me, I'm almost done. The old covenant said that there was eternal life. That there was forgiveness. That there was salvation. There was heaven. There was intimacy with God. But not through that system. You see what it was, this is what made the acceptance of Jesus so difficult. Because it means forsaking everything they had known to follow him. It's hard. For those of you that have trusted Christ in your Savior, you get it. Because you've trusted Him as your Savior. But if you're seated here this morning, you don't know Him as your Savior. Literally what I'm asking you to do, and I'm literally asking you to forsake everything that you've ever known. Humanism. It's not so much Judaism anymore. Humanism. And to turn to Christ. There's no neutrality. Jesus was saying, listen, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of deliverance. Jesus is coming onto the scene and He's blowing up the Old Covenant, getting ready to usher in the New Covenant. It's no wonder why most in that day said, no thanks. Hey, he's, he's, a, he's a great teacher. And today, many are saying, no thanks, I don't need that. But a beautiful portrait is being, is being drawn here by Mark in chapter number 3. Lord of the Sabbath, He's the physician, He's the great deliverer. Next week, we're going to see Him as, oh, I can't wait till next week. I wish I could preach it right now, but it is time for lunch. Amen? You can say amen, it's okay. Music's playing, you're good. He's the great discipler. Oh, I, I hope this week you read ahead. Why don't you read through the end of chapter number three in preparation for next week. He's the great discipler. He's the hope for broken creation. Oh, Jesus is the hope. Jesus is the stronger man. We'll talk about that at the end of this chapter. He's the stronger man. He's the worldwide. He gives the worldwide, the kingdom the worldwide kingdom purpose. That's who He is. Power over evil. He's a brother and He's a friend to all who believe. Now listen, you can seek to destroy Him or you can run to Him in brokenness and need. You can give yourself to be part of what He's doing or you can run from Him. You can silence Him in your heart. You can name Him a madman. You can blaspheme His name. Or you can celebrate grace that has included you and his family. I would ask you this morning, it's afternoon now, you've listened well, and thank you very much for that. What are you doing with Jesus? What are you doing with him? I asked you at the beginning, 
what did you do with him this week? What are you doing with Jesus? What the, 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 the beautiful portrait. How, how would you describe him? And as you would describe him is often how you are using him. I don't mean like he's a lucky charm. But if God is small, then your weak is small. If God can't, if God can't deliver a, a broken marriage because he's small, then guess what? You're going to give up on that marriage. If God can't bring you through a, a health concern because God is small and, and God can't do this and God can't do that, listen, what are you doing with Jesus? He's awesome. What are you doing with him on a practical basis? Lord, I believe. If you're saved here, you can say that. What about your seasons of unbelief? Can you say, Lord, I believe, but I don't always find rest in you. I don't always find joy in your purpose. There are times when, when there's things in life that actually seem more important to me than, than you. I don't always celebrate my deliverance from the evil one. There are times that I actually pursue evil when I've been rescued from evil. Lord, I believe. I believe. But in your grace, rescue me in my unbelief. This morning, God, draw me, draw me closer to a deeper and a more practical trust in Him. Hey, it's great to come here on Sunday. I'm so glad you came. So glad we worshiped. Encouraged by some kids running around the property yesterday. But listen, I've tried to make much of Jesus. If we can't take the doctrine of Jesus and meet that into our everyday life, we're struggling. And you and I, you know what we need to do in a moment when I ask you to pray? You need to ask God, God, help me to take the truths of what I know about Jesus. We hear it every week. And apply it to my marriage, to apply it to my parenting, to apply it to my friendships, to apply it to my relationships, to apply it to the job, so on and so forth. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, can I say to you, Jesus, this Jesus that I preached about, He's your only hope. Only in Him can life be found. Only in Him is hope found. Only in Him is forgiveness found. Run to Him. Confess your need. Seek His forgiveness and rest in His grace. What are you going to do with Jesus? You've heard another message from the book of Mark all about Jesus. What are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? Heads bowed, eyes closed.